Hello, it is Thursday, the 18th of January, and welcome to Career 24. I'm your host, Kwon j a n g w o The two main parties have unveiled competing plans to tackle the country's low birth rate, with the PPP focused on improving parental leave, while the DP has called for more affordable housing. We'll have more in news briefing shortly. Coming up on Weekly Take, we discuss a proposal to reduce the number of lawmakers in the National Assembly and the latest ruling related to the lethal humidifier disinfectant scandal. And coming up for Explore Korea, we learn about Korea's unique postpartum care culture, particularly the practice of using special postpartum care facilities called the Sanujori One. Let's begin Korea 24. Rival parties on Thursday announced competing plans to tackle the country's record low birth rate. In the first set of pledges in the run up to the April general elections, Our KBS World Radio news editor Kui Jin joins us in the studio now to unpack the party pledges as well as our other headlines of the day. Hui Jin, hello. Hello, Jang. Okay, so the main parties unveiled policies to tackle the nation's notoriously low birth rate, which fell to 0.7 in the third quarter of 2023, far, far short of the replacement level of 2.1, which would keep the country's population stable at 51 million. Let's look at the proposal first from the People Power Party. I gather the ruling party focused their plan on improving parental leave. Can you tell us more? Well, the ruling People Power Party announced it will first mandate providing paid parental Leave of three months for mothers and one month for fathers. Childcare leave will be newly implemented, allowing parents to take uh, paid leave for up to five days every year if they are children up until uh, their third grade or elementary school are sick. Also, the monthly la- uh, salary for para- uh, parental leave will be expanded from the current maximum of 1.5 million won or around 1,100 US dollars to 2.1 million won. The ruling party also proposed the establishment of a new population ministry to tackle low birth rate issues, in line with President Yoon Suk Yeol's campaign pre- pledge to disband the gender, minis- uh, gender ministry. Okay, so that was the PPP. What are the measures announced earlier by the opposition Democratic Party? Well, on housing stability, the DP pledged to provide public rental housing for families with two or three children that can be available for allotment sale at a relatively lower price after a period of time. Also, it proposed that the government expand state support eligibility for newlyweds from the current seven years to 10 years to help young people become financially prepared to start. A family, the main opposition party vowed to provide a 10 year loan worth 100 million won or around 74,000 US dollars to newlyweds, regardless of their income or assets. Principal and interest uh, will be deducted by the number of children, with the entire principal exempted upon the birth of a third child. In other political news, the ruling People Power Party has confirmed that it will recommend that President Yoon Sung Yeol veto a special bill requesting an independent investigation into the 2022 Itaewon crowd crush disaster. The bill was passed by the opposition strong parliament earlier this month. The opposition has balked at this announcement. Can you give us more details? Well, following a general meeting of PPP representatives on Thursday, PPP floor leader Yoon Jae Ok stated that similar special laws relating to Uh, investigations into the 2014 Seoul ferry uh, disaster and the 2011 toxic uh, humidifier disinfectant. 
important uh, cases were passed through with a partisan consensus, stressing that the Itaewon bill was unilaterally passed through the Standing Committee and the plenary vote by the main opposition Democratic Party. Yun said uh, past practice of uh, partisan cooperation was completely disregarded. The PVP floor leader took issue with the, a clause in the bill regarding the formation of the Investigation Committee, which allows the opposition to recommend seven members against four from the ruling side, saying fairness cannot be guaranteed, while accusing DP of inducing the presidential veto and attempting to politicise the issue leading up to the April elections. Yun proposed that the two sides renegotiate and alter the bill to guarantee fairness in an investigation. The opposition immediately blasted the PPP's move. Um, PP, uh, DP uh, floor spokesperson Lee Mo-kyung said in a news conference on Thursday that the PPP appears to place more value on the right to nominate party candidates than the lives of the 159 people uh, referring to the victims of the crowd surge. Uh, family members of the victims of the disaster shaved their heads in protest of the PPP's announcement. Let's carry on now to some tech and business news. Samsung Electronics unveiled its new premium mobile phones at the annual Samsung Galaxy Unpacked event in California. This is Samsung's new push to challenge Apple, which topped the Korean tech giant in global smartphone sales last year for the first time since 2010. What more can you tell us? Well, the South Korean tech giant introduced its latest Galaxy S24 series at its annual Samsung Galaxy Unpacked event at Uh, on Wednesday in San Jose. Uh, The new models come with AI functions such as real-time translations of phone calls in uh, foreign languages. Now let's listen to a demonstration by Samsung Electronics' uh, Drew Blackard, uh, Vice President of Product Management, as he showed off some of its functions. Hola. Esta llamada se está traduciendo y subtitular de forma simultánea. Hello? Can I make a reservation for tomorrow at 7 p.m.? Hola. ¿Puedo hacer una reserva para mañana a las 7 de la noche? Por supuesto. ¿Para cuántas personas? Of course. For how many people? Table for two, please. Now, as you heard, the phones can translate telephone conversations in real time in 13 languages based on Samsung's own generative uh, AI uh, training. Samsung said that the S24 is the world's first AI-powered smartphone. Apple topped Samsung last year in smartphone shipments, overtaking the South Korean uh, tech giant for the first time since 2010. As you mentioned, and experts say generative AI on devices will have a large impact on smartphones. Markets. Turning now to tensions on the peninsula, the top nuclear envoys of South Korea, the US and Japan held talks in Seoul on Thursday amid North Korea's belligerent rhetoric and its deepening military cooperation with Russia. Can you give us more details? Well, Kim Gon, special representative for Korean Peninsula Peace and Security Affairs, held talks with his US and Japanese counterparts, Chong Park and Hiroyuki Namazu, in the foreign ministry. The three sides appear to have coordinated a three-nation cooperation plan in response to the recent situation on the Korean Peninsula. During the meeting, Kim said North Korea 
Korea is creating tension with the South to enhance internal solidarity in the North while adding that the regime is sticking to the old tactic of shifting responsibility to uh, South Korea and the US. The three nuclear envoys also shared their assessments of recent trends in uh, North Korea-Russia relations, including North Korean Foreign Minister Che Sonny's visit to Russia this week and sought ways to strengthen cooperation with the international community to prevent Pyongyang-Moscow military cooperation. Meanwhile, a senior U.S. defense official said that the U.S. will take North Korea's military space capability seriously if it has elements enabling the North to conduct a war. Can you tell us more? Well, John Plum, the first Assistant Secretary of Defense for Space Policy, made the remarks on Wednesday during a briefing on the U.S. space policy. When asked about how to curb North uh, Korea's potential threat in space, Plum said that there is a host of problems with North Korea, including its ballistic missile programs and violations of UN Security Regu- uh, Council resolutions. The Pentagon official, however, added that as most nations seek access to space, it is not clear that just uh, launching a, a satellite constitutes a threat. North Korea claimed to have successfully launched its first military spy satellite called the Maligyang one in November. A few days later, the North said the new spy satellite had photographed the White House, Pentagon, uh, US bases in Guam and South Korean cities. That's where we're going to wrap it up for our news briefing today. Heejin, thank you for bringing us those updates. Thank you. Next up, it's our weekly in-depth segment, Weekly Take. This is where our panel of political commentators pick their top political or social stories of the week to explore the pressing issues facing Korea today. Let's bring in our guests now. First, we have joining us on the line a Philip Professor Kim Byung-ju from the Hanguk University of Foreign Studies. Professor Kim, hello. Hello. And we also have joining us on the line Law Professor Cho Hee-kyung from Hongik University as well. Professor Cho, hello to you too. Hello. Okay, Professor Kim, let us start with you this week. What is the topic that you have brought for our listeners today? Well, I was thinking the Han Dong-un, the facto leader of the ruling party, his proposal to reduce the number of lawmakers was something that's an interesting issue that he raised. He's not the original thinker here. Uh, the idea of cutting the total number of lawmakers has been around for a long time and has been repeatedly raised. But the fact that he raised again this time um, means a lot of different things. So I thought uh, it's an important topic that we can deal with. Right. So the current interim head of the ruling People Power Party uh, has recently been laying out his reform measures, uh, I guess, to appeal to voters ahead of the general elections in April. And one of them this week was a proposal to reduce the number of lawmakers at the National Assembly from the current 300 to 250. He criticised the proportional representation system for not fulfilling its role. He said the party would pass this revision after achieving victory at the elections. So, Professor Kim, why have you chosen this topic? Well, and you know, there are a lot of different details involved here, but... If we go along with this idea of reducing the total number of lawmakers uh, 
from the level current level of 300 to down to proposed 250. The general observation is that uh, the reducing the number of the district representative, those lawmakers who are uh, uh, elected by the voters' votes, uh, reducing the number of those folks will be uh, pretty difficult. Uh, there are 253 out of the current total 300 lawmakers. And the thing is, uh, most people understand his proposal is reducing the number of proportional representatives, uh, which whose number is about 47. So that's close to 50 he's talking about. So uh, the idea of the question of whether it's a good idea to reduce proportional representatives uh, is a good idea or not. That's one question. And the thing is, for me, I don't necessarily agree that that is a good idea because there's a, there are reasons why we have proportional representation. Uh, we want to, among many things, we want to uh, strengthen the footings of the smaller minority, uh, minor parties. So we don't want to get rid of them. And uh, that's one of the reasons. There are a the long list of reasons why we have, uh, we have a proportional uh, represent- representatives here. But if he's proposing that, that's something that I don't agree with. Uh, that's one aspect of this issue though, that I see. The other aspect is that, however, though, we want to have certain kind of reform uh, in terms of how our people's representatives are spending taxpayers' money. Mm. So I looked up the numbers. As I said, there are 300 uh, lawmakers here in Korea. And uh, basically, I first of all checked how much they're getting paid. Uh, They're getting paid every month about... Uh, 12 million, 12.8 million won. Okay. Uh, so uh, the, what that means is annually they're getting paid 154 million won, which is not a small amount of money. The thing is, it's not all the money that, uh, that taxpayers are paying for one seat, one uh, lawmaker's presence, 154 million. That's not all. The thing is, there are other costs, and my calculation comes, other costs accounts for 110 million won. So altogether, one lawmaker costs taxpayer 260 million won per year. And what I'm saying is, okay, uh, you know, we have to make sure that lawmakers are getting paid sufficiently so that smart and capable people will be willing to work for this position. I agree with that. And also lawmakers office needs to be supported su- sufficiently so that they will have enough professionals who will support these lawmakers and come up with smart, healthy contents of legislation. So I support all of those. However, some of the expenses that taxpayers are paying with our taxpayers' money, I wonder whether they are necessary. For instance, I'm thinking about uh, you know, fuel uh, vehicle fuel support, you know, the, the, when lawmakers uh, operate uh, their black sedans, uh, uh, you know, how much they're getting paid every month in terms of fueling their gas, uh, hunt, uh, one million one per month. Uh, and they have uh, 350,000 one extra for maintenance of these vehicles. And uh, I didn't get into the details about 
how they're maintaining their chauffeurs, maybe drivers. I think drivers come from their staff members as well, all that kind of stuff. And I wonder whether this black sedans, which is, which is usually black sedans, not all lawmakers are driving those, but the thing is, these kind of creates kind of like elite M image, kind of nobility, kind of noble class above people. Why can't we see lawmakers taking subways? Why can't we see lawmakers taking uh, buses? And if they need certain kind of uh, special purpose vehicles, why can't they just a black taxi, for instance? Why do we have to have them you know, using up like one million won every month for fueling their black sedans? Mm. Uh, all these kind of status symbols, those kind of things. I wonder, there are a lot of different things that, that we can, uh, you know, uh, rationalize, if you will. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll wrap up my point here, but my, my one of the last example here would be even in their pay structure, uh, you know, what they get paid 154 million won per year. Uh, what that includes is the Myeongjeol Hyugabi, the, the holiday special pays for lunar, holiday, uh, lunar New Year and then, uh, you know, Korean Chuseok holidays. And that's about 8 million per year. So all these kind of extra pays, these things that that's where our us the taxpayers pay for, there could be certain changes and make them look less elite, less detached from the people, and and make them look more like a servant for the people. So that's what I have in mind. Right. So, Professor Cho, what do you make of Professor Kim's pick about uh, Handong's proposal to reduce the number of lawmakers? Uh, Professor Kim is perhaps uh, not in support of the idea, but he is in support of perhaps uh, changing the finances, how we finance lawmakers and how the lawmakers uh, should be questioned about how they use their finances. I thought that Handong Hun's proposal was just... Uh, completely lacking in any kind of uh, policy thinking uh, and has no, you know, uh, support in either evidence. It's simply, I, I thought, directed towards sort of um, populistic uh, appeal and it, which has been used many times in the past. Uh, I think uh, one that sticks in mind was An Su back in, was it twenty. 16, when he had promised that he would reduce the number of lawmakers down to 200. Now, if he actually wanted to cut down privileges of lawmakers, he should actually increase the number of lawmakers rather than decrease it, because the premium, if you reduce the number on each seat uh, that lawmaker occupies, would, would simply increase, because uh, obviously when supply becomes smaller than the value of each uh, position becomes greater. Now, I don't want to stop at lawmakers, though. Uh, certainly, the National Assembly um, members enjoy significant fringe benefits and uh, privilege and privileges and perks associated with their office. But I think the problem is actually greater at provincial and local government level. I recently read uh, a, a book written by the, the former personal aide to, um, I'm sorry, I'm just having a slight mental blank here, but the, <laughs> the former uh, Chungcheong provincial governor 
um, who was convicted of uh, sexual assault. Ani Jung. Thank you. So the book describes how Ani Jung simply became obsessed with uh, the, the kind of um, uh, special privilege that he would enjoy as a governor and to the point that it essentially corrupted him, uh, made him become, basically be uh, you know, expectant that this is what he's entitled to, uh, grew his sense of entitlement right. and essentially made him forget uh, his, his original duty. And so I think the way to go really is to look at all the special privileges that are provided currently to uh, all of our public servants at high level uh, and look at what is really necessary for them to get, do their job and cut down on everything else. Right, Professor Kim, is there anything you would like to add in light of Professor Chul's comments? We would like to brief, take, keep it brief so we can move on to our next topic as well, but uh, perhaps uh, the fact that there are criticisms that this is a uh, populist policy. Well, you know, we're not getting back to Han Dong-un himself, but I think uh, Professor Chul's last point about the need to minimize and reduce privileges and perks at all different levels of public servants is very, very critical one, and I hope we can talk more about this uh, some other time. But, you know, just remind me of the city council members and different kinds of provincial council members uh, going overseas, you know, like we talked about this when we talked about Jamboree, for instance, but, you know, taking foreign troops, trips, overseas trips based on taxpayers' money and making them look like a really kind of elites and separated yeah. from the people. They're public servants. So I think that uh, addressing this issue at all different levels of public officials is very critical. The Jamboree is, of course, the World Scout Jamboree and the debacle last year. Uh, let's move on to our second topic now, this time chosen by Professor Cho. Professor Cho, what have you brought for us today? So I have brought for you the judgment from an appeals court in Seoul handed down last week, which reversed a trial judgment from a uh, first instance court in the humidifier disinfectant case. Now, the appeals court reversed the trial court's judgment and held that SK Chemical and Aegyong, or AK, two of the, the number of manufacturers uh, of disinfectants that were used in humidifiers, uh, were guilty uh, and sentenced several directors, including the former CEOs of both companies, to four years' imprisonment, although they weren't immediately taken into custody because the court acknowledged that they, uh, they, there could be legal disputes. So it's probably likely that the, the directors and the companies will appeal to the Supreme Court. But this is such an uh, abominable case and a national tragedy uh, and a disaster of an unimaginable scale, but not enough attention is being paid for it. And this latest case is just one in a series of various civil and criminal and administrative cases that it's actually difficult to keep track of what's going on. But essentially, the uh, companies that manufactured and sold humidifier disinfectants between 1994 and 20. 11 that have so far killed more than 
1,800 people and officially acknowledged number of uh, victims were still suffering from uh, life-threatening diseases uh, over 7,000. But the penalties that they are actually having to pay is so insignificant relative to the crimes they have committed. And there is not a lot of accountability, particularly on the part of the government, uh, let alone the companies. So I wanted to talk about that, that a little bit more. And what is more concerning is that the scale of the disaster may be far greater than we know of and that is officially acknowledged so far because a special inquiry that was conducted by a public institute estimates that if you count unreported cases from 1994 until 2011, the total number of victims are likely to be about 20,000 deaths, close to 1 million victims whose health have been affected, and nearly 9 million people who are, who are exposed to humidifier disinfectants who may develop uh, diseases in the future. So many of the victims, as we know, were infants and very young children, as well as pregnant women. Uh, and attempts have been made, uh, obviously, to make the companies pay for compensation, etc. But apart from uh, Oxy, Racket Bank, Teaser, and one other company being uh, sentenced, uh, and their CEO have been serving um, ultimately six years in, in jail, uh, not much real accountability has really actually happened so far, uh, particularly regarding the government. Right, so you're saying even though this latest ruling has found these are two companies uh, liable and guilty, uh, you're saying that this only scratches the surface and you're saying that far more uh, needs to be done? Absolutely. Well, first of all, the companies deliberately hid evidence that these chemicals were toxic and they were even making uh, commercials. I actually watched some of them preparing for this segment. Uh, they were advertising how this is completely pure, uh, uh, healthy for the body, it's uh, you know, uh, non-toxic, safe, etc., etc., using little babies and you know, smiling mothers in their commercials. But at the same time, you know, they were exporting these disinfectants right. overseas and they were submitting reports of toxicity mm. to other governments, but they were hiding this all from the Korean government and Korean people. Also, uh, afterwards, I mean, the government didn't require any kind of safety report regarding these uh, chemicals. And even later, uh, for example, the Fair Trade Commission should have imposed penalties on these companies for these misleading, in fact, false uh, fraudulent commercials, and they failed to do so. Uh, and just in one case, they fined something like 110 right. million won, which is just a, such a fraction of the profits that these companies made. Professor Kim, what do you make of Professor Cho's choice uh, and this scandal and this latest ruling by the appellate court? Uh, this is one of those issues that are extremely difficult to comment on because um, I don't claim any expertise on legal aspect or technical aspect about this humidity, humidifier, uh, you know, disinfectant 
and uh, you know all these uh, claims about uh, deliberately hiding the facts uh, that harmed Korean people and so on. I have no position, I have no expertise, no information to take a side with it. So uh, legal, technical, all factual things aside, and even setting this entire humidifier disinfectant case aside, I'm just thinking of this big philosophical question uh, that I have in my mind in this society regarding these issues about tragedies as a whole. Like we have tragedies quite often. We have Sewol sinking, Itaewon disaster, and this, this, this humidifier disinfectant case where little babies and little children were uh, sacrificed. And I think my own part, I think I use this material quite actively. And uh, there is uh, some health concerns for my family as well. But the thing is, when we deal with these human tragedies, I just wonder, uh, you know, setting aside the question of holding negligence accountable, uh, we have legal reasons for this negligence, holding negligence accountable. But, but I just sometimes have hesitance whether there is any human psychology behind our human desire to kind of uh, have someone pay back, uh, making someone as a villain who did all these terrible things intentionally to innocent people. Uh, I just think about that. Uh, you know, ignorance and lack of knowledge, we have it all the time. And when I was using humidifier disinfectant, I had some questions about safety. Like even these days when I use sunblocks, I do have questions about its safety in the long run, right. which we don't know. And uh, caffeine, I have had questions about safety for decades. What I'm saying is a lack of knowledge right. in using these kind of pro products. But when we turn around at the end of the day, uh, are we being careful enough not to hold someone as a villain? Right. Just in order to just have a payback in our psychology. That's something I have my questions of all the time. We are out of time, so unfortunately we are going to have to end it there. Uh, Professor Kim, Professor Chua, thank you for your picks uh, this week again, and uh, we'll talk to you again next time. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index inched up 4.14 points, or 0.17% on Thursday, to close at 2,440.04. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also rose, climbing 7.28 points, or 0.87%, to close at 840.33. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 4.51 against the US dollar, to close at 1,339.71. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. Next up, it's Korea Trending, our daily segment where we take a look at some other news stories that have been trending online. And for that, we have with us in the studio news editor Daniel Che. Daniel, hello. It's good to see you. Hello there, Jungle. What do you have for us first today? Well, the nation's Cultural Heritage Administration is making changes so a, a greater number of items can become eligible to qualify as cultural heritage. 
Okay, so these are items or practices that we would deem culturally and historically significant that we'd want to preserve and protect with that designation for future generations. Can you fill us in on the details of the changes being made, though? Yes, the administration announced on Wednesday that a new system will be implemented to allow items that are less than 50 years old to be preserved in accordance with cultural heritage preservation guidelines. The change was deemed necessary as many valuable assets with great historical and cultural values that should be preserved were lost just because they are less than 50 years old. With the changes, such items will be under greater protection. They will be shielded from vandalism and not fall into the wrong hands, as in people who do not fully understand their value and discard them, or those who seek to sell the items off for profits. Okay, what sort of items are we talking about then specifically? The metal hoop used in the 1988 Olympics in Seoul, one of the most moving scenes from the opening ceremony, was a boy born on September 30th, 1981, the day it became official that South Korea will host the Global Games. Running across a stadium rolling that metal hoop, it was choreographed to send a message of hope for world peace and harmony. The boy named Yoon Tae-wung is now all grown up and has been and continues to work as a versatile actor as a Korean TV and cinema star there. Going not too far back to 2010, Kim Yuna, who firmly established herself as the GOAT, or the greatest of all time in the figure skating world, <laughs> cemented her legacy by winning gold at the Vancouver Winter Games. Her ice skates were also being seen as good candidates. I see. But nothing has been finalized as of yet, right? But with this new criteria, we could be seeing a lot more items from recent history then. Yes, many first, many first in the Korean tech realm will also qualify as items deemed worthy of cultural heritage status, such as the first Korean-made smartphone. As the choices could be limitless, the Cultural Heritage Administration plans to have an event starting in May that allows citizens to submit their own list of cultural heritage status-worthy items to help the authorities make sure they leave no stone unturned. Yes, it'll be fascinating to see which items from Korea's modern history do get recognized under this new system. Let's move on to our second story. What do you have for us? The Korean national men's hockey team, field hockey by the way, is inching closer to earning an Olympic berth for the first time in 12 years. Yes, okay. So can you tell us more about their journey thus far? It hasn't been an easy one for them, right? Not at all. On Thursday, the Team Korea coached by Shin Seok-kyo beat Austria 42 in the Group B Round 3 of the Olympic qualifiers held in Spain. Korea needed a win to keep the Olympic hopes alive, so it was a dramatic game with the Taegook Warriors first earning an early lead at 2 nothing, but conceding 2 in the 3rd and 4th quarters to the Austrians. With just 4 minutes left on the clock, Yang Jihoon scored the crucial game winner, and Hwang Tae-il put a dagger through the opponent's hearts with another just before the whistle blew. Yes, this was an important win and the Tegel Warriors first in the group stage, right? That's right. Korea now has one win and two draws and ranks second in the group. Eight countries are competing in this stage and the top three teams will earn the tickets to the Paris Olympics. Okay, so what lies ahead for them now? So the team could earn their ticket to Paris as early as Friday. That's when they face Belgium. If they lose this game, there's still a chance to make it by winning the last match to determine the third and fourth place team in the round, which would mean we could face either Spain or Ireland. That of the Korea Hockey Association provided bonuses to the national team to thank them for their outstanding performance so far and to, of course, rally them on. Yes, hopefully this will give them the motivation uh, to head towards Paris. Let's uh, move on to our final story. What else was trending today? Well, we have more from uh, the Berlin International Film Festival and a cult mystery thriller starring Chen Min-sik and Kim Go-un has been invited to be screened at the same festival there. The film's distributor, Showbox, announced the official invitation on Thursday. Right, another Korean film going to the prestigious event. Uh, It'll be screened at the festival's forum section, I understand. What's the significance of this honour? 
The forum section is a hot favorite among select cinema buffs. They tend to focus on films with darker, grittier stories and cinematography. To give you an idea of the requirements to make the cut, here are some of the previous Korean commercial titles chosen for the category Snowpiercer 2013 by Bong Joon-ho and the 2011 Late Autumn by Kim Tae-young and A Tale of Two Sisters, a fan favorite among horror movie fans, 2003 by Kim Ji-won, that is. Organizers mm. of the event said Exuma is a standout among the movie screen at the section as well. One of the most creative and challenging films. The forum section of the 74th edition of the festival opens on February 15th for a 10-day run. Can you tell us more about the movie itself? What's it about? So, Exuma, directed by Chang Jae-hyun, is it revolves around mysterious events affecting a geomancer, an undertaker, and a young shaman duo. They are paid to exhume the grave of an ancestor of a wealthy family, but their actions unleash a malevolent force. Uh, this exhumation for relocation or cremation is something that's actually practiced in Korea when they need to change an unfavorable location of an ancestor's burial site in terms of feng shui or because the grave location is believed to be causing misfortune for their descendants. Well, it sounds intriguing. Movie fans in Korea will get to see it next month uh, when it opens here in local theatres. That's where we're going to wrap it up for today's Korea Trending. Thank you for those stories, Daniel, and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for having me. Time now for our weekly segment, Explore Korea, where we take a journey across the peninsula, discovering more about the country's culture, history, and travel highlights. Joining us this week is the culture reporter from the Korea Jung Daily, Lee Jian. Jian, hello, and welcome back. Hi, Jungle. Good to see you again, and happy New Year. Yes, happy New Year <laughs> to you too. I understand that you are taking away, taking us away from food this time, and onto something a bit different. What do you have for us today? Indeed. So just last month, the World Health Organization released findings that estimate one in three women around the world who've given birth experience long-term physical and psychological effects from childbirth. And this report emphasized the importance of recognizing illnesses that can result from labor and call for better understanding of postpartum care in general. Now, Korea is a country that has actually been taking postpartum care incredibly seriously from ancient times to today. And one example of that is h a n which are postpartum care centers for women, largely unique to Korea. So I'll be ta- talking about that today and how Korean women take care of their bodies postpartum, including what s a n u j o r i w a n is and Korea's age-old postpartum care practices. Okay, so how Korea handles postpartum care and the practice of using s a n u j o r i w a n s postpartum care centers, facilities that are unique to Korea, it seems. So tell us more about the uh, centers, Hanujori ones, and how uh, are new mothers taken care of in these facilities? Mm -hmm. So during a woman's stay, she's given a private room and three meals every day. She also receives help with her baby and breastfeeding and massages. And depending on the center, they can also offer services like psychology sessions, baby care lessons, yoga and Pilates. Now, the cost of an average two-week stay at a country's uh, Sanujori one is about 3.07 million won, estimates around to around $2,300 as Mm. of last year, according to the health ministry. Ones with higher prices naturally have more activities and better rooms. 
So former newscaster and TV personality Park Geun-young in 2021 filmed a video about her experience at a high-end Sanyujoriwon in Gangnam District, Southern Seoul. And it showcases her luxury room, which includes a private garden, upscale meals including lobster and facials. So her postpartum center is set to cost around 25 million won, which is $19,000, also for the same two-week stay. Wow, so there was a huge range in services then from 2,000 yeah. to 20,000 yes. US dollars uh, for two weeks uh, around the clock care. Interesting, okay. So, do no other countries have a similar concept? It's actually uniquely a Korean facility, and even neighboring country Japan does, do not have this kind of facility for women postpartum. There is word, however, that upscale versions of Sanujoriwon are increasingly becoming popular in China these days. And also with the recent attention to the importance of postpartum care, similar facilities are starting to pop up around United States outside of Korea towns. Right. When I have spoken to uh, non-Koreans about this, uh, people have been surprised and also uh, many have commented how it seems like such a good idea, especially those mm. who had a difficult period of recovery after their births. So where did this idea come from then? How did this practice of using such facilities come about in Korea? So postpartum care is something that has been deeply rooted in Korean culture since the ancient times. But the boom of Sanujoriwon is a relatively recent phenomenon arising around the late 1990s as the importance of postpartum care continued into the modern society, but family forms changed. So fewer young couples throughout the 1990s opted to live with their husbands' families. And these small nuclear families mushroomed wherein which women after birth no longer had the help of extended families to carry out proper postpartum care. And this led them to seek help outside their family. And the appeal for Sanujoriwon has grown since then. Mm. Now, the rate of women using Sanujoriwon rose from 75.1% in 2018 to 81.2% in 2021, according to Statistics Korea. Those who carried out their postpartum care with the help of extended family, however, dropped from 22.2% in 2018 to 15.2% in 2021. Wow, so over, 20, over 80% of mm-hmm. uh, women who uh, give birth use Sanyujoriwon. That is a huge yes. number. Uh, so you're saying that while Korea has its particular history and tradition regarding postpartum care, these facilities really emerged as the family unit and dynamics changed in recent years. And right. there was less and less involvement of child rearing from the extended family. So these centres came in to fill the gap, essentially. Mm-hmm. And the benefits were, as you said, it provided new mothers a chance to rest and also provide useful services, like getting mothers used to breastfeeding, mm-hmm. as it can be a challenge for first-time parents, especially in the early days. Yeah. But it hasn't been without controversy, right? There are those who don't view these centres as positively as others. Mm -hmm. Indeed. I found that one of the bigger reasons that some Korean mothers don't opt for Sanujoriwon was the fact that they were separated from their infants during their stay. So at a typical Sanujoriwon, there are separate rooms for the mother and the infant. The mother stays in a regular room, sometimes with her husband, while the babies in the center are placed together in the nursery. Nurses take care of the babies around the clock, including putting them to sleep and giving them baths, and the mother is called in to breastfeed every three or so hours. And the person I interviewed for the article said that she doesn't like the idea of sleeping apart from her baby, and also that she didn't want to subject her baby to the Sanujoriwon's feeding schedule. But... This doesn't mean that these women forego postpartum care altogether. They have other options like using hired help or their mothers to take care of them in the comfort of their own homes. 
Right, so while most opt to go with this service, some are against it. But regardless, it does seem like Koreans take postpartum care very seriously. Why is that? Is there a historical context? Yes, there is actually. So certainly more than some cultures, we do take it much more seriously. And for instance, uh, this lady who had her second child in New Zealand was telling me how shocked she was when the medical staff there fed her a popsicle right after her birth and then told her that she should because she should cool down because she sweated so much during the labor. (laughs) And then she was given a T-bone steak for dinner that night and was told to take a shower anytime she wanted. These things obviously would never happen in Korea, which has very specific and serious steps for proper postpartum care. Some of the main rule of thumb include keeping warm, staying indoors, avoiding showers or any strenuous activity, and eating lots of miyokuk, which is seaweed soup. Um, Well, these may not all be empirically proven, but postpartum care practices go way back. For instance, there was a record, there is a record of women eating seaweed soup as early as the Joseon dynasty. The soup is today known to be helpful to postpartum care because of the dish's high iron levels. Yes, I do find it fascinating that miyokuk is more <laughs> than uh, tradition. It really does have uh, ground in science. It's been proven to be good for new mothers because of the high iron levels. Yeah. It seems our uh, Korean ancestors knew uh, what they were doing. Yeah, there was wisdom there. <laughs> but it's not just food, right? No. <laughs> as you said, it's uh, it's more than just food is about uh, uh, the quarantine uh, uh, mothers as well, right? Yeah. So that is called Samchirir, or the three seven days where the women of the newborns in the Joseon dynasty weren't allowed to leave the house or see visitors for three weeks. Um, as an indication of this, her family would hang straw ropes around the front door of the house. Today, the same rest period is thought of as necessary for the mothers, for their stretched bodies and muscles to return to their original state. Um, most importantly, she must keep warm with layers of clothes from head to toe, even during hot summers. And all of this is done to actually ultimately prevent one type of postpartum syndrome that is seemingly only recognized and treated in Korea. And this is called sanupung. Sanupung. Okay, can you explain what sanupung is for our listeners? Mm-hmm. So that's a ref- it's a referring to a wide-ranging set of maladies experienced after birth, from fever, joint pain, and body aches to even psychological conditions apart from the diagnostic postpartum depression, like prenatal mood or anxiety disorders. A 2022 qualitative study on Korean medicine-based postpartum care in Korea uh, actually describes Hanukkah as a cultural disease defined by Korean medicine as the synthesis of various postpartum symptoms caused by improper management of the postpartum period after childbirth or miscarriage. Mm. And in direct translations, Hanukkah means postpartum cold breeze because many women suffering from Hanukkah describe this feeling of a cold breeze entering their bodies, which is why Koreans are so focused on keeping the new mothers warm. And since this isn't necessarily a medically proven illness, mothers with Sanupung visit an oriental clinic for herbal remedies and treatments like acupuncture instead of the Western hospital. Uh, Many also feel that these treatments are more organic than Western medicine and they don't want to pass down anything negative while breastfeeding their babies. It's interesting, but although this is a Korean term, surely it's not just Korean mothers who are susceptible to these uh, groups of uh, ailments or Sanupung, right? 
Correct. So having the terminology doesn't mean that only Korean women are susceptible to sanopung. According, like I said in the introduction, the WHO research team, a third of new mothers around the world have lasting health issues after the birth. Uh, the study published in Lancet Global Health and eClinical Medicine in December estimates that some 40 million women worldwide suffer from postnatal physical pain, urinary incontinence, and depression that can persist for months or even years. So it can be seen as significant that Korea has recognized the importance of postpartum care for a long time and has come out with various preventative measures for it, like s a n o j o r i w a n Yes, ultimately, it's just about ensuring the health of the mother and the baby after birth. And every culture has their traditions and cultures and quirks, I guess. This is Korea's. Mm-hmm. However, I guess one major difference is the very high cost of these uh, centres, these Hanojori ones, mm-hmm. at a time when Korea has a notorious reputation for having the world's lowest birth rates, with one of the main reasons being that couples feel like they aren't financially ready to have children. Uh, this situation, uh, checking into Sanojori as to those concerns as well. Yes, you're absolutely right. The high prices of Sanojori one is a factor that makes couples think twice about having kids. As mentioned before, the average cost to receive two weeks of care at either a public or private Sanojori one is 3.07 million won. And this was up 27.4% last year from 2017. In Seoul, the, where the average was the highest, prices surged from 3.2 million to 4.1 million over the same period. This is more than the average monthly wage of a white-collar employee in Korea at a small and medium-sized company, which is 2.66 million won. And just below that of the large conglomerate workers, which is 5.63 million won, according to the latest data by Statistics Korea. Now, public facilities are cheaper, averaging around 1.7 million won for two-week stays, whereas private ones cost some 3.09 million won, according to the health ministry last year. But there are only 19 public postpartum centers in the entire country, and just two in Seoul. Wow. Right. So reading into these concerns, the government, Seoul Metropolitan Government, actually began handing out one million one postpartum care vouchers per baby to all new parents, regardless of their income, starting September last year. The vouchers can be used to pay for Sanojori one or other postpartum care services, exercise classes and medicine. Right. So another way for local governments to try and ease the financial burden of childbirth and raising children for uh, new parents. I guess some listeners might ask, why take on this particular burden (laughs) when you can just go home? But it has become the norm now in Korea, rooted in tradition and culture as well. Well, Jian, we'll leave it there. Thank you for telling us all about it today. I think it has been quite informative for our listeners. Have a great week and we'll see you again next time. Take care. Take care. Thank you. That's where we close out our show today. We hope you can join us again tomorrow for more news, views and reviews from Korea. Till then, we hope you have a great day. I've been your host, Kwon Jang-wo, and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. KBS World Radio